No fish have been harmed in the making of this podcast. Welcome aboard, everybody, as we get ready to get underway. Thank you for joining me on Talking Bass in PDX, your warm water forum as we talk fishing in the Northwest. Hi, I'm Don Clark, and I'll be your host. Well, it's January. We're getting ready to kick off the second season of Talking Bass in PDX, but to keep the cabin fever away, I did attend the January 1st event out at Hag Lake, first fish of the year. Hag Lake is about an hour west of Portland, and generally we have attended this event for the past five years. Well, this year we got skunked. I think there were some fronts coming through, and the water might have been just a little bit too cold, but it was still a great day on the water. Got to get the boat out and uh, saw a few of our friends, and we hope that uh, everyone is doing well. Now, from fishing reports, I have heard that Silver Lake up in Washington might be a good bet this time of the year. I know that the crappie fishing is okay up there, but the bass fishing, I've heard, uh, is it's still a little cool, but uh, we're, we're having a fairly mild winter here in Oregon. Uh, we've had a lot of rain, but the temperatures aren't too bad. Well, on this episode of Talking Bass and PDX, I got a chance to talk to what I'm going to call a legend, and that's Steve Fleming of Maha Outfitters. And I had heard of Steve for some time now, and he is a guide of the upper John Day River. But before we talk to Steve, let me remind everybody that if you enjoy listening to the podcast and you like talking about fishing, help us grow by telling your friends and letting them know that we can be heard on Spotify, Anchor FM, or if you have an iPhone, just look us up under iTunes under Talking Bass and PDX and we'll pop right up. Well, over the past few years, I had heard that fishing the Upper John Day was a special treat. It's a world-class fishery. And many of my friends had said, hey, Steve Fleming is the guy you want to talk to about fishing the Upper John Day. Well, as I found out, Steve has more than 30 years of fishing on the John Day, so he seems like he would be the guy. And based on his experience, the trips sound fantastic. Steve and I talk about some of the stories of his favorite fishing, and then we get down to business, and Steve takes us through a day on the water. If you're young or old and you want to go fishing on the Upper John Day, I think you need to contact Steve and take a trip. Well, I don't want to hold it up too long. Let's get to the interview with Steve Fleming of Maha Outfitters. Well, I'd like to welcome Steve Fleming from uh, Maha Outfitters uh, onto my podcast. Steve, welcome. Hey, thank you, Don. Looking forward to talking with you a little bit here about my favorite topic, smallmouth bass fishing on the John Day River. Well, that is exactly what uh, folks want to hear. They love talking fishing, and they, they come to the podcast to uh, to hear about it. Now, I noticed that you you started out fishing the river way back in, in the 1968 era. Uh, how did you get going on smallmouth bass? You know, um, they didn't put the bass in until 1971, but uh, my wife was from Fossil, Oregon. And so we got married in 1968, and I started coming to Fossil quite regularly. Now, my family and I had recreated on the middle fork of the John Day River since I was a little kid, since I was four, five, six years old. And so I'm familiar with the John Day River, but we didn't come through Fossil. At that time, we would go through Pilot Rock and come in 395 when we came in. And so it was great. I mean, uh, my father-in-law owned the only bar and restaurant in Fossil, and and uh, he knew everybody, and uh, gosh darn, I'd show up, and he'd say, what do you want to do this weekend? I said, I'd like to go do some fishing. And so he'd call somebody over and say, hey, how's that fishing down to your place? i say, pretty good. i say, hey, that's my son-in-law, Steve. Take him fishing. Would you show him a couple? Yeah, sure. I want to go bird hunting. So i pull somebody else over. I mean, it was great, great. People up here are real friendly. I'm sure you knew that anyway. There's only 1,300 people in Wheeler County, and they all know each other, and they all get along really well. 
Well, I think if uh, as as we talk along through the podcast and uh, and we give out the information about how folks can book a trip, I think a lot of folks are going to be looking forward to coming out to uh, to that part of the the uh, Oregon area. Now, fast forward a little bit. Uh, Back around 1989 or so, you started guiding there. So tell me how you got into into guiding on the river. Okay, well, you know, uh, I I was still living in the greater Portland area until uh, 1988, and then we moved to Fossil. And so I was uh, working as a bartender and so forth. I had a drift boat, and there were some fellows here in town that had drift boats too, and I'd known them. I'd already known them over the years. I'd gotten to know them. Most of them, anyway. And so they said, hey, you know what? Why don't you start a guide service up, and we'll help you out. You know, we fish on the river a lot. And so the next thing you know, there were like five of us that had drift boats. And I started up a guide service from scratch. And it really worked out great because these guys were really good fishermen, and they really did know the ins and outs. And and so we had a really good beginning to begin with. And next thing you know, within five years, I had enough clients that I could go full-time as a guide. Uh, so it was a, it was an interesting beginning. I made some great, had some great friends when I started. You know what I'm saying? And some of them have gone on and passed on now, but they were some great fishermen. I just, I just lucky. Just, you know, right place at the right time, I guess. Wow, well that that's great. Now, one of the things that I was kind of checking out, and and uh, as we get along here, we'll we'll give out your website and how people can uh, can mm-hmm. contact you. But I have noticed in here that you've taken out some really notable folks, uh, you know, folks from field and stream and and fishing and hunting news. Who's some of the the noteworthy? Have you had uh, athletes and things like that come by and and go out fishing with you? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, who the user, a friend of a friend of a friend type deal. Um, just lately, I've been taking uh, one of my heroes, as it turned out, one of the Portland Trailblazers uh, comes up and fishes quite a bit. And so, you know, you get into, I mean, uh, for years, um, uh, Stan Fagerstrom would come up and fish a couple days with me, and he's just a, he was a great guy to be with. And I was lucky enough to do my first uh, TV shows clear back in, I guess it was 1997 or 98. And I started out with Hobart Manns, and he had an outdoor show. And it was it was a great deal. Hobart and I are friends today and chat every other week at least on the phone. Uh, and just a lot, of, a lot of good things happened, you know. And I met, met some really wonderful folks, needless to say. Well, that's great that you bring up uh, Hobart's name. I think if uh, folks go back and, and check out some of my archives, they'll notice that this show is fashioned somewhat after Hobart's radio show that he did for many, many years. And so it's it's great to uh, to be able to talk to you because because this is the exact kind of stuff that I was looking for as folks who have been around fishing for a long time. Well, you know, we've kind of come to that point. We've talked a little bit about fishing, and we'll get uh, into it a little bit more. But tell folks how they can get a hold of you. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, you know, uh, they can always call me on my cell phone or text me. Once I start my season, <clears throat> it's probably better off to text me, but um, and I'll start my season sometime around the first part of February, and I'll end sometime around the first part of November. But uh, you can call my cell number. It's 971-533-5733. Or you can go on the uh, – my, my new uh, website is going to come up probably next week. Um, and it's uh, kind of easy to remember in a way. You know, www.johndayriverfishing.com. And uh, the guy's doing a great job on the website. It was getting pretty old. Um, you know how you know how it goes. You don't change some of it, and you should have changed right, maybe some of it. It looked kind of old too. But at any rate, and then Facebook, I'm on two places: uh, Steve Fleming or Maha Outfitters. And then you can always email me, and I open my emails twice a day: first thing in the morning and last thing at night before I go to bed. And it's uh it's M H O dot Basson Buddy B A S S I N B U D D Y 
at yahoo.com. Well, that's great. And I will include uh, that information in my show notes. So if people missed it, and we'll give it to them again at the end of the, the show, but we'll also, uh, we'll also have it available uh, in the show notes. So tell me a Thank little you. bit about how your day starts if you're fishing with you, and tell me a little bit about drifting down the river. How far are we going to go? What kind of gear do you have? What kind of uh, things are we going to be throwing? Okay. Well, you know, it depends upon what time of the year we're doing your trip because the river, the John Day River, is one of the longest undammed rivers in the United States, which means that you're subject to whatever snowpack there is on the mountains, and as it goes away, the river goes down. And so you'll be, in the springtime, there's usually quite a bit of water flowing, so it could be somewhere between three, four, five, six, seven thousand 7,000 cubic feet a second. And then usually by the time I get down to August, I'm guiding at 300 or less, and Actually, there's been a number of years when I've been guiding at less than 25 CFS in August. So quite a bit of change. But again, it pulls the fish up easier easier to find the fish because as the river drops, they just go to the pools, of course. Um, and so that tells you a little bit about, so where am I going to fish at depends upon how much water there is, too. Early on, I start out by doing 10-mile sections of the river. And then when we get into July, I've had to drop back to four and five mile sections of the river that I do because of the the low water and the difficulty in getting through sometimes. But by the same token, you're catching a whole lot more fish. The smallmouth bass are pretty predictable, whether they be in Oregon or they be in Alabama. They're all driven by temperature. And so once that water temp, now the big fish, the breeding fish, they're actually active year round but they don't feed a lot in the cooler months here in the north because uh, their metabolism is directly tied to the water temp. But we were doing some shows uh, uh, and some uh, riders we had out. We were catching smallmouth bass at 36 degrees, but yeah, there's only uh, some real special float techniques, float and uh, hair jig techniques that we were using fishing in still water, and it's amazing how subtle the take is on a 20-inch fish at that time. It's all, it hardly moves the bobber at all. I mean, it's just amazing how, how subtle they are. They, they typically suck a bait up anyway. They don't bite it like a trout. But then again, as the water warms up, the fish get more active. And then when you get up to 52 degrees, that's when all the fish come active. Up until then, just the breeding fish are active. They're hormonally driven to be active and putting on weight to spawn. But at 52, uh, 90% of the population becomes active to couple with the 10% breeding fish. And so now you've got 100% of the population out there. And you catch more fish then. And a little bit problematic because you've got to fish through some of the smaller fish then. And now, a breeding fish is usually 11 inches or bigger, just to give you an idea. And 90% of the population is 11 inches or smaller. And in a normal smallmouth bass fishery, which the John Day definitely qualifies for, 99.5% of the bass are smaller than 18 inches, which means an 18-inch or bigger fish is one-half of 1%. And so a lot of people like to come early before the little fish come active. And you know, you never know. It depends on the water, how much water flow there is. It probably drives temperature more than anything else. And so um, we're booking April and May real heavy, hoping to get just big fish. And you don't catch a lot of fish at that time, but you will catch fair numbers. I mean, we've had some days last March where one guy was catching over 25 fish in a day. And sometimes there'd be a master angler fish, which is a 20-inch or bigger smallmouth bass. And those are nice fish to get, too. Um, but then again, as you get into, like, your August, uh, actually my first 100 fish day came in June where a client caught 100 fish in one day. But typically that's more, more like a July and August type thing when the fish are the most active, and, of course, all the fish are definitely active by that time. So depending on when somebody wanted to take a trip, if, if they're looking for more trophy size uh, fish, then you might want to try to book earlier. But if you're looking for large numbers, then you might want to book a little later in the, 
in the year. That's that, right. That's, yeah, that's, that's right. Now, now, you can still get a master angler fish at any time, but the preponderance of them come in April, May, and early June usually. Well, that is uh, that sounds great. So tell me a little bit about now. I have fished the lower John Day. Uh, take my boat, mm-hmm. you know, a power boat, and we go up, and, mm-hmm. and we catch plenty of fish there. But tell me a little bit about the techniques and and because uh, floating to me would be a little different than than under under power all the time. Yeah, and again, when you're floating down the river in a drift boat, you're looking. You're not uh, early on in the springtime. You're not just fishing um, every place. You, uh, because of the flow, uh, it might be just too fast for you to be fishing in the currented areas. And so you're going to be limiting yourself to fishing in the back eddies and so forth anyway. And, of course, you can get better presentations when you start fishing finesse techniques when you're not moving the boat, needless to say. And, of course, a lot of bigger fish come on the finesse techniques. But I made a I made a good hookup a few years ago, and a fellow who just happens to be a tremendously nice guy, but he's a very talented fisherman, and Brian Chapman, and he owns a company called Willamette Weapon Lures. Now he himself was a uh, big time tournament fisherman, and in 1998 he finished 20th in the U.S. Open. So you've got to know he's a pretty good stick. But he has a he has a, a, a deal about matching the hatch. Now, he's not a fly fishing guide, but he's matching whatever the smaller minnow prey might be or whatever the, the rusty crawfish. He came up here for three years, him and his boys, and they would catch rusty crawfish here in the river, and they'd take pictures of them and so forth. And he would keep painting and painting and painting. And after three years, he hit a color pattern that was very agreeable to the John to the John Day River smallmouth. I'll tell you that. And he came up that September, and he caught over a hundred fish on a terrible weather day, which a lot of frontal activity, which normally affects the total number. But he had, well, he caught way over a hundred fish, and he got some really nice fish. He came uh, last March, and it was uh, it was kind of like the meeting of the best of the best. The the uh, fish biologist for the John Day that stocked the river in 1971 is a good friend of mine. And uh, he lives in the John Day area, and he's a tremendous fisherman. He's in very good uh, health, and, uh, and he, loves the John, he loves the John Day River, obviously, and he loves smallmouth bass, and he's really good at it. So I put the two of them together in the front of my boat, and then a good friend of everybody's in in the back of the boat, a fellow by the name of Don Miller. And so Earl closed up front with Brian, and all they did was talk about all the different species and the different things and when the, when they spawn. and when. So he's making notes to figure out when he wants to have these patterns ready by. And that particular day was a March day last year, and uh, Brian caught uh, 31 fish on his lures only. And one was 21 inches, and three of them were 18 inches. And, and now, Errol is a really good fisherman, and normally nobody ever outfishes him in the boat. He's, I mean, he's really good. And when we got all done, he came up to me and says, you know, you're never too old to learn, are you? I said, the guy's amazing, isn't he? He says, yeah. And he said, he has some really good questions, you know. I said, well, good. And from that particular conversation, he ended up, giving me three more patterns that are brand new patterns and they work they're working for me they're working really good for me so you know you just every time you turn a corner you can see something good or not and it's been working out pretty good for me so that helps a lot by getting some new uh some new golf clubs some more golf clubs in my golf bag that work you know what i'm saying there you go now the interesting thing about brian chapman is uh that if you go back and look at my archives this is my turn to give a little plug to the podcast go uh, go go back and uh, look at the uh the the uh the list there and brian and i interviewed i believe right before the uh covid thing hit and i actually went over to his uh a uh, place where he where he builds the lures and paints them is pretty mm-hmm. fascinating to uh, to watch. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in our interview, we talk exactly about that. He he talks a lot about the matching the hatch. And uh, for folks who really really want to catch bass, you got to check into his lures. I have a whole 
a whole bunch of them that I've purchased over the past couple of years, and um, uh, I haven't found one that, that doesn't work yet. So that well, he's a phenomenal painter. He's a phenomenal painter. But, but you know how we really got going at first? Um, you know, don't know each other very well. I had some lures that worked really well, but they were out of production. And the lures that I had had kind of lost their luster, and some of them didn't have a lot of color left to them. But I still had one lure that had never been fished for four different lures that I that I favor. Or that, I shouldn't say that I favor, but the smallmouth favor in the John Day. And so I sent him two of them, and he painted them for me. And holy cow, I'm back in the money again, hitting nice. These are big fish lures. These were big fish lures, and hitting good fish. And that's how we started up. And so if you've got a lure or two in your tackle box that need to be re refreshed, or if you're like most guys, you, you find a lure that works, and you go, oh, this thing's great. So you look it up, and you find there's seven or eight other colors, and so you buy one of each or two of each of the other colors or whatever you do, and you come to find out that, hey, those other colors don't work that good. But there is that one color that does work good, and now here you are 15, 25 years down the road, and they don't make that lure anymore. Well, you still got the right body. All you got to do is give Brian one of the older lures with the right colors on it and give him the ones that have the wrong color on them and let him make them winners for you. And he did about 70, 80 lures for me last year just on that principle alone, and it makes a difference. I'm going to tell you right now, it really makes a big difference. Wow, that's fantastic to know that you can get them renewed. Now, I have, oh, yeah. I have the exact same thing. I've got, a, I've got some lures that I really, really like. Uh, they don't make them anymore, uh, and I uh -huh. took them over to Brian, and he not only repainted them, but he also weaponized them. He, he did a little bit of extra Ooh. to them, and... Uh, now I happen to use these for walleye. I don't use them for bass, but they are okay. they're killer. <laughs> they are that's a good thing, isn't it? When you something like that happens, it's like, wow, you know, that is that's great because these are fish that I would have never got at again if I didn't have that lure that had been yeah. repainted. Exactly. And it does make a big difference. It makes a big difference and he does a great job. I got to tell you what, one of the best things for me is he fishes with me two or three times a year, and this guy can fish. I mean, uh, he, he's teaching me all the time. He's showing me different things, whether he knows it or not. You know what I'm saying? He's not trying to, but he, just watching him, why'd you do that? And he tells you, and you go, wow. But then again, he was a big-time tournament fellow, and so he was really dialed into a lot of little nuances that, that uh, not everybody notices, you know. Right. He's got me looking for stuff all the time now. Now, on a on a we'll say a, a a more summer day, we're getting you know where the water's slowing down a little bit. Are you uh, mm -hmm. specifically throwing just like crankbaits and things like that, or do you use a variety of of baits uh, out on the river? Okay, yeah, you know, and I I didn't talk about that, and I should have. Um, I'm a big time finesse fisherman. Okay, I'm big into slow presentations early on. Uh, all throughout the year. And so uh, whether it be Carolina rig or just Texas style or uh, dead stick or whatever, I'm, I, that's how you get your bigger fish. That's how you catch your bigger fish. And one of the things that's actually helped me quite a bit, and this is kind of, kind of hard to believe, but, you know, everybody knows about G. Loomis rods, and they know what great rods they are, and they are. They're great rods. And G. Loomis, of course, stands for Gary, Gary Loomis. And he sold his company to Shimano quite a few years ago, now over 10 years ago. But Gary's mind just kept on working. And he has a company now in Woodland uh, that's called Edge Rods. And I want to tell you what, I think you can, with an edge rod in your hand, I think you can tell when a fish swam by your lure. I have never felt, I've never fished with a finer more feeling rod in my life. And my clients love them. I call it the NRA of fishing poles. And one guy said, why do you do that? And I said, because I have to pry it from their cold, dead fingers. Once they, once they start fishing the edge rods with finesse techniques, they don't want to fish crankbaits in because <laughs> they, they like being able to sense when the fish is coming up. You can, even, you can even tell when the bass sucks the bait up. Think about that. That's pretty subtle. 
and they just love it. They absolutely love them, and they are a joy to fish. I'll tell you that. Uh, I had a lot of good luck with them. I've been fishing them for almost three years now. Uh, my clients love them. They absolutely love it. That helps. It helps when you have good equipment. No, no getting around it. No, absolutely. And I and I think that uh, you know, as I I have used a couple of guides over the last couple of years to uh, to show me different techniques for different fishing, and. Um, mm-hmm. I was at the uh, sportsman show last year, and I went to the to the edge booth, and they showed me the what you're talking about, how those rods are so sensitive. And I and I'm fishing some fairly high end rods, that, sure, sure. Uh, but there is you know I, I'm not not doing a commercial for edge. But I tell you what, if you want to, you, you ought to come out to go fishing with you just to use one of those. Because you're right, oh, you yeah. can feel everything, and I and I'm a finesse fisherman myself. I love the Carolina rig. Cool. Um, mm-hmm. I, I fish on the Willamette a lot um, mm-hmm. in the summertime because I don't live very far from it. And uh, I, I absolutely, if uh, if that's the way you're fishing uh, with uh, with those rods, people will be able to feel it. The, the first time they feel it, mm-hmm. it uh, it's unbelievable. But anyway, back to your back to your. Uh, your story. Um, so as you guys are going down river, then you're you're uh, using a uh, kind of a slower presentation. Yeah, I'm looking for back eddies that I can pull into and drop anchor typically, and so that the the boat's dead stops, and so people can sense stuff a whole lot easier then. And then again, I've been doing this one section almost three thousand times now, and I'm getting to know it pretty good. It's a ten mile section, and so. Uh, it does help a lot. And then again, by knowing the different flows of the river and what to expect and where to go. And the one thing, and, and we didn't mention this, but you know what a, you know that TRDs are, uh, Z-Man's TRD baits. Mm-hmm. TRD stands for the real deal. Those are the problematic bait in a way, or they used to be, because they're a 10X bait, which they stretch. They stretch 10 times their size. And so the bass absolutely love the feel of the bait. And so they'll come up and they'll get a hold of the bait, but they won't eat it. They like put it in their mouth and they chew on it and, and they go, oh my gosh, this feels good. Oh, I love this. I love it. I love it. I love it. And if you didn't have an edge rod and, and somebody had told you ahead of time, look, when you feel them, they probably are not at the hook. They probably are on the end of the bait and they're enjoying it. And so what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to try to wait, lower your rod just subtly, just ever so gently, and try to figure out when you have a solid connection with them because they're, they're just chewing on it. They're not, they haven't, they're not the hook point yet. And with an edge rod, my clients have been very, very successful fishing the TRDs. And TRDs work well. You know, they work well in all water. I don't care whether it be the, uh, the Willamette, the Columbia River or the John Day River. They are, they are pretty good bait, and, and the sizing and everything seems to work well. And quite honestly, I don't even know if it makes any difference what color it is, although some colors work better in some conditions than others, but uh, they're a good bait. But there again, you need the right equipment in that rod to make a difference to get more success. You're going to get bit as many times, but how many will you hook up? That's the, the, that's the, that's the goal, of course, is to actually get the fish to the boat. But, and, um, and, and which hook do you use, by the way? Just, just curious. Well, um, you know, I'm using jig heads. Now, I don't usually use this. I don't usually use the shrum hooks, and I, I uh, because I'll tell you why. I actually had one edge bait that caught over 200 largemouth on the private lake that I guide on, and that wasn't in one day. That was over a couple, three days. One of them. And if you use a shrum hook, and I'm not a, a shrum set, I'm not really against them, but here's the deal. They've got the, they've got the barb that sticks up, and if, you are to change, if you're going to change baits at all, what happens? It rips them up. It'll rip up the TRD. Mm-hmm. But if I go back to just a regular jig head with a collar, you know, with a, with a bump on the collar uh, to, to hold it in place, uh, it doesn't tear them up. And I can take them on and off. I can change colors just in case I'm, I don't know, I don't think this is going quite right. I better drop into a greener color here or something like that. I'm not, I'm not ruining the bait either. And so for that reason alone, I don't use the shrimp. I'm not saying they don't work because that, that's not true. They do. But the problem with them is, is they tend to rip up the TRDs. 
Yeah, no, and I I totally agree. I uh, there's a particular uh, uh, crawdad that I like to use, and it's, <laughs> well, there's about five of them. But, and, I, and you're right. There's some days. There's some of those that are just unbelievable, isn't it? Oh yeah, but is it the I, California crawl? Or the, <laughs> yeah, but the problem is, is I can tear them up faster than I can put them on yeah. a hook. Because if I want to change yeah. it. Yeah, so I may have to I may have to come out and look at your technique just so that I'm not tearing up so much bait because this stuff is expensive. I mean, you know, let's face oh, it. Oh yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And and so do you switch off kind of between plastics and and the crankbaits, or or do you stick with one thing throughout? Well, yeah, the trip? yeah. Well, you know, when we go, you know, it's like a fighter. A fighter doesn't want to have just one punch, and so. I have three rods per client set up separate, different. And so one would be a crankbait for sure. And the other two are going to be soft plastic presentations of some kind. Now, they might just be a regular uh, double-tail grub or single-tail grub, or they might be a TRD, or they might be a Carolina set up with a lizard. Or and TRDs are, are neutrally buoyant, you know, and they float up. Mm-hmm. And so... I use a lot of them on Carolina rigs, too. So I'm going to have three different rod setups. And so when we go into a hole, pretty much the way the smallmouth are early on is you make three casts with a crankbait, and, and you cast a different place every cast, and you're not getting anything happening. Set that rod down. You pick up another rod. You go a little deeper, and then go a little deeper. Like on a Carolina rig, we fish them on the bottom, then you go clear down to the bottom. So you see what I'm saying? We're covering all three areas of the hole that way, and we're after the fast reaction strike, and all my stuff has rattles in it usually. Not not always, but usually on my crankbaits have rattles in them. And then we go to a mid-level, and then we'll drop down and go to uh, the bottom then and fish on the bottom. And we have to, when we fish on the bottom, we don't drag the bottom um, not that you couldn't do that on a John Day. It's mostly rock, but by the same token, we like to have something float up just to, just ever so slightly up off the bottom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's just experience, you know, from past years as to what it is you're going to do. And then, as you well know, and, and this is not to put anybody down, but some people, they can't do anything but a crankbait. That's what they're geared for. They're geared for the cast and retrieve and the cast and retrieve. They're not going to slow down. And the biggest, the biggest problem for all fishermen is probably they fish too fast when it comes to uh, fishing anything other than a crankbait. And maybe they're even fishing the crankbait too fast. And so you have to slow them down. And some people, you just can't slow down. There's no reason upsetting them. We've got to learn to work with them then. And so maybe we'll throw uh, some X-wraps or something like that, neutral, you know, where they're going to go down two or three feet and, and work it that way instead. So you just have to kind of watch your people and decide which one you wanted to go, and then what worked yesterday obviously is going to be what we start with. But well, that's great though that as a guide you're helping that customer. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna not only educate them on you know other baits, but you know help them along because mm-hmm. you know. Um, oh yeah. I, I talk a lot. I've talked to a lot of these guys that are. Uh, I call them power fishermen. You know, they're just throwing all day long. So mm-hmm. I'm just not that. I'm just not that kind of fisherman. You know, I like to put it out there, let it sit, let it drop down, mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. the area a little bit till I, uh, you know, till mm-hmm. I've decided that no, it's not there, or yes, there are fish there, and then we then we go from there. Now there you go. On your trips, are there incidental catches up there also of other uh, warm water fish or panfish that that are available? Um, yeah, not panfish because the John Day, you know, is a real unusual river. It's kind of a locked river system because ten miles up from the Columbia, there's a falls, and the only thing that can get up over the falls are salmonoids. And so there's no walleye in the upper John Day, you know, above the falls. There's no bluegill to speak of. Uh, other than maybe one that might have washed out of somebody's private pond in high water or something, mm-hmm. and there's no uh, walleye, there's no sturgeon. Uh, you see what I'm saying? So it only has what's been stocked with, and so that's a little bit different. So you don't have to worry about fishing through other kinds of species all the time either. So that's helpful, and it does make it a good setup. It's the only now on our steelhead trips that I do. 
they're only native steelhead. They don't, they've never put a hatchery, they never released hatchery steelhead into the John Day River. And I'm not saying a hatchery fish didn't get lost and come up the river, but because that does happen. We catch one every once in a while, not, not once a year even anymore, but every once in a while we get a hatchery steelhead. Typically they're all native. Right, right. Now, on the, um, on the smallmouth bass, uh, are you primarily catch and release, or, or how do you handle uh, uh, that? Yeah, I'm 100% catch and release only. Uh, like I tell people, they say, well, can I keep one? I say, sure, if you catch a state record, you bet you can keep that one. We'll, matter of fact, we'll, we'll just empty my cooler, and we'll fill it full of water, and I've got a, a, a D battery aerator that I'll throw in there, and we'll row for the closest store we can find that has a, a certified scale and get you the best weight we can on it now. But other than that, no. Well, that's great because you know you're being such a um, a good steward to uh, you know to your fishery, and um, you know that that fits right in with the way that I am. I think that the game fish are so valuable that we should catch them over and over again. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I don't keep bass because um, you know I like to go catch them again over and over again. Time-wise, what time do you push out in the morning? And uh, tell me a little oh, bit about about your trip. Yeah, you bet. Um, the, you know, the trips start usually sometime around seven o'clock at the river. It might be seven thirty um, when we're actually in the boat on the water, floating down the river. And then I take out usually around five o'clock. So it's a pretty good, pretty good long day for fishing. Um, we have breakfast burritos, homemade breakfast burritos that I give the clients if they meet me here at my house at 6.30 and they can eat them while we're driving to the river. Or if I meet them at the river, they can eat them while I'm getting the boat launched. And then we cook in a Dutch oven in the boat as we go down the river. We don't pull over to do the cooking. We just do it right there in the boat. And it's already been put in a – the meal is already prepared in the oven it hasn't been cooked before, but it, so we don't stop and make a Dutch oven meal. We, we eat it while we go down the river. It's cooked in a barrel, in a sand barrel in the, in the boat when we go down. And then in the, in the earlier trips where it's cold, then we have a hot uh, uh, cobbler in the afternoon for dessert then. And, and again, it's a pretty full day. Typically, we even eat in the boat for lunch. Not saying that we don't get out. I have chairs and tables, and I ask the clients what they'd like to do. And if the weather is too a little bit windy, which can happen sometimes, or we don't get a lot of rain, but if it does look like the weather's going to set in a little bit, I'll encourage them to let me set a table and chairs up in a grove of trees or something so that we'll have some protection from the wind or from the rain. But uh, they get a lot of fishing in. And so a lot of times they'll meet me here. It's, they meet me here at 6.30 at my house in Fossil in the morning, and I have them back here by 7 at night. Wow, that is a very full day. Now, you know, I like I said, I've been on the Lower John Day, and the scenery is phenomenal. So the the scenery mm-hmm. coming down the river must be just unbelievable. Then uh, the, it is, and the wildlife too. I imagine it is. You know, there's it's not as much well, people. Do you see many deer and elk? Not typically. They're nocturnal, <laughs> so you're not going to see too many of them. But there's lots of other things that you're going to see between the geese and the ducks and the you know, the tanagers migrate through. There's lots of things that you're going to see. Um, and the, the scenery is spectacular. Um, I mean, I see something, or actually my clients see something usually every day that I hadn't really noticed. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm watching the water, obviously, and they're, they might be looking around a little bit more at the scenery. And they'll say, what's that over there? Where, where are you looking at? Oh, well, well, yeah, hey, look at that. That is kind of cool, isn't it? And typically they want a rock formation or something they're pointing out. But and there's a lot of rock formations on the John Day. And I, now I was looking at your website, and I was just curious at the you know so you've got a two day uh, uh, smallmouth fishing trip and seminar. So do you give some a, a class also, or is it? Uh, you know, I, I every other year I do. Um, I'll do a two day uh, seminar on smallmouth bass. And it has PowerPoint presentation. And then what we do is we, uh, about 20 minutes of PowerPoint, and then we, they, they tie up the setup that I've been showing them. And then we'll take the poles and we go outside and fish with them for a little bit just to get some 
you know, just to get a little feel going on. I used to do them at the river, and sometimes I still do them at the river uh, when I can find a, a place that I can rent right on the river to use for that. Or I might do it here at my house. It depends on the time of year that we're doing it on, too. Um, then I do a one-day seminar uh, also, same thing, somewhat abbreviated over the two-day, but we cover pretty much A to Z, um, trying to, to, for the person who's never been up here before, it would be a good idea because they're going to get a lot of information. And they get takeout stuff. They get handout stuff plus a booklet, plus they get the BLM uh, River Guidebook, you know, things like that that they would need. They should have anyway. And so, Well, what is the uh, most unusual uh, catch story that you've got? <laughs> it's probably Hobart Man's, actually. We were... Uh, I think we were still filming that day. It was after lunch. Hope I was such a good fisherman that a lot of times we actually had our TV show in the can by lunch. But it was after lunch, and we were fishing. It was maybe an hour or so after lunch. And Hobart, um, he used to bring a lot of his own equipment, a very accomplished angler. And he had a really nice, lightweight, not ultralight, but a lightweight setup. And we were throwing our rapalus. Uh, that per, at this particular incident anyway. And we were fishing a small little seam. In other words, the hole wasn't very big from the bank to the current line. And a uh, uh, good hole uh, had, had some depth to it. And, uh, man, Hobart's rod went down. I said, hey, snag? No, I got a good one. I said, okay, cool. And so, you know, I, I was next to the bank anyway with the boat. And all of a sudden, I, 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 said, I said, talk to me. He says, it's not a bass. I said, yeah, I can tell that now. And what he ended up doing is it was a uh, May trip, like the middle of May, and that's when the summer Chinook run through. And he had himself a nice 12, 13-pound summer Chinook on this light setup. But he's a good angler, I'll be honest with you. He, if it hadn't been, I don't think we would have got it in. We got it up and got it in the boat, of course, and let it go. But it was quite a fight. I want to tell you what. It surprised both of us, and it was a nice surprise. We got, and we got it on film, obviously, so that made it kind of interesting, too. Now, those fish come up in April and May, and then they go on up to their breeding grounds, which was probably way up river up in the Middle Fork or way up, way, way up in the North Fork. And they actually don't spawn until, like, September 10th to September 20th. They just, beat, they just get it just inside the summer uh, time span. And those are our summer chinook. The reason they come up so early is because they need the cool water and they need the volume of water to get back to those breeding grounds. Well, that, that's a great story. And I love the way you've worked Hobart. But I, got the film, I, got, I got film for that one. It's not just a story. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, – now, how about yourself? Have you? I mean, I'm assuming you get to do a little bit of fishing. Um, what was the most uh, unusual thing that you got that you caught? <laughs> well, I hate telling stories on myself. But anyway, this one section of the river that I do so much uh, in this, in a, I start there in February, March, April, May, right through June. It's from Service Creek down to a private takeout that I have, and it's a great section because there's a lot of twists and turns in the river, so there's lots of back eddies, lots of holes, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful section. And again, with lots of twists and turns, everything's different. You know, you, you can't see clear down the river. You can't see four miles down the river or whatever. And so everything's new every time the river, every time the boat goes around a bend. Well, at any rate, I had a, I had a new uh, fellow working for me, but he had never been in this section. And a uh, great guy. And it turns out he ended up becoming my son-in-law. He married my youngest daughter. He's a wonderful guy. He's a good fisherman, good guy. But he'd never been down the river on this section. So he just he and I are going. And so, you know, I'm fishing. Uh, we don't have clients. I'm fishing. And uh, it, the water was a little up. It was like 4,000, 4,500. And I really like throwing spinnerbaits in heavy water uh, when, when it's a little faster like that. And so I'm throw a spinnerbait right on the bank, and as I pull it off, bam, it goes down. Well, it just takes off, just screams right out into the river, and it's a big fish. It's a good fish. And I go, oh, geez, I think I hooked a carp. I hate it. Oh, I just hate wasting time on this. I said, here, listen, I'm going to push on it. I'm going to I'm I'm try to rip it off. It's probably in his dorsal fin. And the reason I didn't think it was a bass is because it, it just took off and ran right straight out into the current in the river. And so I really pushed on it hard, 
and that thing surfaced, and it was a 23-inch smallmouth. <laughs> and I'm in the middle of the boat rowing. I said, holy cow, you were rowing. Get to the bank. Get to the bank. Get to the bank. Get to the bank. <laughs> and we got it in. I got a picture of it even. But now there was a, there was a deal where I just know, I just sure, I just hooked a carp, and we're going to ruin, we're going to lose 10 minutes of our trip here on a carp. We're gonna, and I don't mean to demean carp, but that's not what we're down there for. We're after bass. And here it turns out to be a really nice bass. God's good. You know that? Well, yeah, and I, I have, I've actually watched a guy wrestle a carp. Um, we were out uh, crappie fishing in Boardman one day, and uh, I know he's <laughs> going to listen to this podcast, so I'm not going to mention his name. And uh, yeah. he, he ends up catching catching this big carp, and, and he fights uh-huh. he fights it on this little light reel, and he's got light rod, and he's got oh, four pound test. And I'm going, why are you? Oh, why are you fighting that fish so much? And he goes, because that was the only crappie lure I had like that one, and I want it back. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I have a picture of him hugging that carp, and it's about 25 inches long, but he got it back. Ooh, that's, that's big carp. That's a big, big carp. carp. Yeah, that's a big carp. So yeah, I, so I know he's going to listen to this. So I won't say his, I won't tell you who it is, but uh, he's a good guy. Well, this oh yeah, yeah. Well, I understand what you're saying. You know what? He knew that was a good lure. He had to get the lure back. I don't blame him. There's nothing wrong with that. I got my hat back to him. I'll throw I'll throw his name out there. Then he's the president of Oregon Bass and Panfish Clubs. Name's uh, Bill Ramsauer. So, Bill, if you if you listen to the <laughs> podcast, you're <laughs> you've been you've been made famous. Um, now, yeah, he, you're my hero. Saving <laughs> tackle. I like you. There you go. Now. <laughs> Look, he caught a big fish on a white setup. Oh, it was too. It was real light. He chased that thing all around that boat dock. I I didn't think he was ever going to get it in. Uh, now, <laughs> when you and I were talking the other day, I was kind of excited about the year, and I was thinking, boy, you know, maybe this because this trip's on my bucket list. It, it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be this year, but it's going to happen. But um, mm-hmm. now. Because a lot of people are staying around home, they're not traveling as much. I understand that you're booking up pretty fast oh. so you know when the podcast yeah. goes out i mean this thing you know it hits all 50 states i hope folks want to come into oregon and and enjoy our beautiful place but uh what time of year are you do you kind of have left if people are looking to to uh book a trip okay that's a good that's a fair question you know when i start in february i'm actually doing steelhead trips and then Towards the very end of February, there's steelhead, and it depends on water temp and some stuff, steelhead slash smallmouth. time I hit March 1st, there's steelhead slash smallmouth. And by the time I get to the 10th of March, they're more like bass with two hours of steelhead fishing first thing in the morning. And then by the third week in March, they're pretty much all smallmouth trips, okay? Um, I'm not saying that somebody said I wouldn't want I want to try for steelhead or show me how the technique is Okay, well then I'll put a couple rods in and I'll show them how to do it But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it then and so I'm already sold out in May I've got about three days left in See June has one day left um, April has Four days left and March has about seven or eight days left and so I'm starting to sell out already. Um, there are some days in July. There's probably seven or eight days in July, and there's probably about the same number in August. And then September is still fairly open. Uh, they won't start booking September for probably another two months, would be my guess. And then I am booking up my steelhead trips for October, but I've still got lots of openings there. But, you know, if, that, if I can't take you, I'll talk to you, and if I... You know, I, I might be able to refer you to another guide. Uh, there's only a couple couple people that actually guide day trips up here, but I can maybe I can find somebody else for you. Yeah, well, that'd be uh, that'd be great because you know I I get a lot of emails, uh, you know, from the podcast every time I put one of these out, and uh, mm-hmm. and they'll they'll ask me, you know, I've I've put on some other guides before, primarily on uh, walleye because I include. You know, just about everything in the in the uh, warm water group into my into my podcast. This is the first time I've really dug deep into into bass. And so, if folks want to go, okay. they can contact you. I hope that they get out. Uh, 
because now what I've heard it's world class fishing. You're going to catch a lot of bass if you if you if you go at the right time of the year. So I I hope that folks uh, get a chance. To well, I guarantee. I, yeah, I, I guarantee fish on dawn of the next trip's free, and I'm not rich, so you know there's going to be some fish caught. I can tell you that already. Yeah. It's, it's a good fishery. It's a real good fishery. And uh, and I've got a backup plan, by the way, and I didn't even mention that. But, you know, where people do come from across the United States to come here, and they've got airplane fare, and they've got their room set, and I can't take them the next day. Usually, I'm usually, I usually guide six days a week. So the chance of me saying, oh, well, we just sit it out today, and I'll take you tomorrow, that isn't going to happen. Somebody else is going tomorrow. So years ago, I ran into the same scenario where the river might blow out. In other words, it gets uh, rain hits the snow, and all of a sudden it's running high and dirty, and very difficult. May not even be possible to catch a fish. So I I started leasing a 125 surface acre lake clear back in the early 90s, and Pat Hoagland at one time classified it as one of the best uh, largemouth bass lakes in the state of Oregon. It's it's a quality fishery. It's a private lake, private property, and I can take you there, no extra charge, and so you will go on a fish-catching trip then, and it has largemouth and bluegill in it. So. Wow. So so one way or another, you'll go fishing then if you, if you – One way or another, well, no, you won't just go fishing. you go catching. I, fishing trips are fun, but catching trips are really much better. There you go. You know, we always go around going, yeah, we're going fishing, you know, but nobody ever talks about, hey, we're going catching, you know. They always uh they always want to catch them. Well, this has been this has been a great uh, uh bit of time here and uh and I appreciate, you know, that you've that you've come on the podcast. You know, we're a we're we're kind of a small uh podcast compared to some of the things that you've done over the years and uh and gave us a look back at things. So this this has been great, and I, I truly do appreciate you coming on. Okay, and I thank you for giving me a call. I, I love talking about bass fishing, and I even love watching people catch fish more than that. So, Well, that's great. Hopefully well, they'll give me a call. Okay? Yeah, give me your phone number one more time. You betcha. It's uh, 971-533-5732. Five seven three three, and that's a cell number. So you can always send me a text. Well, that's great. Well, and again, I will have all that information in my show notes. And Steve, I'd like to thank you for coming on, talking bass and PDX. All right. Hope to hear from you again, Don. Well, I hope that everybody enjoyed the interview. And Steve, once again, thank you for being on Talking Bass and PDX. Now, again, I will have. All the information on how to contact Steve down in the show notes. And we will uh, be able to contact him through his even through his cell phone number. For show ideas or feedback, please email me at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. I will also include that in the show notes. I would like to thank everybody. Until next time, this has been Don Clark, Talking Bass in PDX, and I'll see you on the backcast.